Hello and welcome to the Oleaster Podcast, the audible version of articles on oleaster.org. I am Devin Phillips, the author and your narrator. Without further ado, let's dive in. Roots of Rage, Part 1 Iran, Sheikh Jarrah, and Al Aqsa. Dear readers, it's been a long time since I sent out a Substack. I hope you're all well and keeping your spirits up, despite grim news and evil days. I have been working on some new Advent content, which I hope to release for you in the coming month. I've also made voiceovers of most of the backlog of Oleasta articles for those who prefer to listen, rather than read. The RSS feed is in the Substack article. Many of you, I imagine, kindly followed this account because of the biblical meditations, but I also do the occasional analysis of current events in the Middle East, as this is where I live and the focus of my university studies. Almost exactly two years ago, I wrote a three-part series called Roots of Rage that attempted to give a bit more context to flashpoints and headlines in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. I recently reread them, and they seem to me all too relevant to the present news cycle so I thought I would republish them on this platform. I do not relish diving into such viscerally controversial material. I would rather spend peaceful and joyful hours contemplating the beauty of the Lord. However, I believe it is crucial to apply the Bible's principles to what we read in the newspaper and diligently seek to discern what is true and understand what is just. A historical background to this convoluted issue is beneficial on this aid. Without further ado... Here's Roots of Rage, Part 1. When the latest round of conflict between Israel and Gaza broke out, I was eager to hear the opinion of my friend who'd spent years as part of the security infrastructure in Israel. Given only that information, it would be easy to make assumptions about his policy positions regarding the Palestinian territories, but you would most likely misjudge him. His opinions are hardly standard Zionist fare, and he defies political categories. He regularly says things like Israel should give up Jerusalem and has rather unorthodox, no pun intended, ideas about dividing up the Jewish state in the coming final conflict. He doesn't believe in the Bible, but he believes in the Battle of Gog and Magog, a final and decisive war beginning with an attack from the north. His political takes are never what you would expect and are guaranteed to make you think. As a group of us sat down for coffee after a workout, I immediately turned to him and asked, So, what do you think? There was no need to be more specific than that. Everyone knew what I was talking about. The unrest on the Temple Mount, the Al-Aqsa complex, Sheikh Jarrah, Jewish Arab violence within Israel, rockets, airstrikes, Iran, Hezbollah, Netanyahu, Hamas, Biden. The list goes on. Before he could answer, people at the table began to chime in. Did you hear about this lynching in Lod, the child who died, the number of rockets, the Iranian militia in Syria? Everyone at that table had been in the army, and most carried visible trauma, hypervigilant as the news became grimmer and grimmer. My friend interrupted them to say, we can look at this two ways. Either we take each incident on its own and are consumed by heartbreak and despair, or we can look at the larger picture. The more I considered his words, the more I knew he was correct. We can play an endless game of one-upmanship, the number of dead civilians, or that hate crime, or who provoked whom, or what is the proportionate versus a disproportionate response. 
But until we consider the broader narrative that spans both history and the regional geopolitics, our understanding of the motivation and morality of Israel's actions will inevitably be skewed. Understanding what is happening right now in Gaza requires not just understanding the, quote, Israel-Palestinian conflict, unquote, just categorizing it as Israel-Palestine makes it sound like a conflict with just two sides, and one of those sides has the distinct upper hand. But for Israel, it has never been a conflict strictly between them and the Palestinian territories, but a more significant regional battleground in which Israel is a speck in a sea of hostilities. Mati Friedman, in his New York Times article, There Is No Israel-Palestinian Conflict, explains it best. Quote, To someone here, zooming in to frame our problem as an Israeli-Palestinian conflict makes just as much sense as describing the America-Italy conflict of 1944. American GIs were indeed dying in Italy that year, but an American instinctively knows that this can only be understood by seeing it as one small part of World War II. The actions of Americans in Italy can't be explained without Japan or without Germany, Russia, Britain, and the numerous other actors and subconflicts making up the larger war. Unquote. So bearing the need for this broader narrative in mind, let's dive into several of the root issues and contributing conflicts that led to explosions across Israel and Gaza this last month. Iran, Hamas, and nuclear talks. We can't begin to zoom into the intra-Israel and Palestinian conflict without looking at the regional realities. Israel is in the middle of the Arab-dominated Middle East and North Africa region and sits on just 0.2% of that land. In terms of population, it's a question of the 6 million Jews of Israel up against the 300 million Arabs of Israel and the surrounding nations. But even talking about the Israel-Arab conflict would be inaccurate. Two countries that pose most ideological and military threats to Israel's existence are not Arab at all, but Turkish and Iranian. This consideration tips the scales even further away from a balance of power between two sides. If we are now potentially talking about a Muslim-Israeli conflict, with the one billion Muslims that live worldwide. Between Arab neighbors and Muslim countries thousands of miles away, this conflict existed long before the, quote, provocation, unquote, of a Jewish state, long before Israel captured the Golan Heights, Gaza, or the West Bank, and long before the term Palestinian came to have its modern meaning. Today, however, no single nation is more of an existential threat to Israel than the Shiite theocracy in Iran. In 2015, Iran's supreme leader, Ayatollah Ali Khamenei, gave a speech that said, the Zionist regime will cease to exist in 25 years. On the next Al-Quds Day, a holiday created in Iran to celebrate the Islamic Jerusalem, a countdown clock to Israel's destruction in 2040 was unveiled and presumably is still counting down the days. But more than this religious posturing and political saber-rattling, Iran is a substantial and material threat. From the decades since the Islamic Revolution in Iran and the Iran-Iraq War, Iran has been fighting a subtle war of dominance 
through several proxy fights that have slowly but surely established it as a regional powerhouse. Iran has substantial control of several Arab countries through its vast network of militias in Syria, Lebanon, Iraq, and Yemen. Indeed, one of the gravest threats to Israel is the Shiite militia Hezbollah, founded and funded by Iran, with hundreds of bases on Israel's northern Lebanese and Syrian borders. If Hamas, another Iranian-supported militia, had hundreds of relatively unsophisticated, though Iranian-supplied, rockets to lob at Israel, Hezbollah has an exponentially larger and more sophisticated arsenal. And here is where Israelis can play out strategic and realistic scenarios. Suppose Hezbollah decided to attack from Lebanon and Syria simultaneously. Suppose the precarious monarchy in Jordan fell, and Hamas took over the West Bank, meaning that there would be an uninterrupted highway between Tehran and Jerusalem. These are not far-fetched. When Israel unilaterally withdrew from Gaza, Hamas was elected and gave Iran front-row access to Israel's southwest border. In the chaos of the Syrian civil war, Iran and Iranian-affiliated militias took advantage of the power vacuum and essentially took control of large chunks of the country, especially the border with Israel. North, east, south, west, Iran has been tightening the noose around the neck of Israel from all sides. So we can see that from an Israeli perspective, the West Bank is essential to the security of Jerusalem, which we can say is interchangeable with the security of Israel. But here you might object. Hamas is an offshoot of the Egyptian Muslim Brotherhood and radically Sunni. How can you say that they're essentially an Iranian proxy or puppet in this conflict? There is a surprising history of connections between Iran and the Palestinian clause. In 1979, Yasser Arafat, a leader of the Palestinian cause, was one of the first international figures to visit Tehran mere days after the success of the Islamic Revolution. Today Iran, tomorrow Palestine, cheered crowds as they listened to Ayatollah Ruhollah Khomeini praise Arafat and his vision for the Palestinian state. Arafat, in turn, hoped that, just as the Iranians trained revolutionaries in Lebanon, they would help train and establish fighters for the cause of Palestine. And is the Palestinian resistance feeling stronger now if he is backed by the Iran? Definitely, it changed completely the whole strategic policy in this area. Our allies, the freedom fighters, the Mujahideen of the Iranian people, had replied him by uh, starting this heroic, patriotic, great revolution in Iran, led by our Imam Samahatullah Ayatollah Khomeini. As more and more Arab countries signed peace treaties with Israel after their defeats in the Six Day and Yom Kippur wars, many Palestinians felt that the broader Arab world had abandoned them. When Anwar Sadat, the president of Egypt, visited Israel in 1977, the alienation went deep. Two years later, post-revolutionary, non-Arab Iran was ready to take up the anti-imperial, anti-Western cause of Palestine. It gave Iran an appeal beyond the borders of its country and beyond the boundaries of Shia Islam as the true protector of the faith and defender of Muslims. The Islamic Republic of Iran proclaimed the last Friday of Ramadan to be Al-Quds Day. Al-Quds is the Islamic name for Jerusalem. Tehran would also establish the Quds Force, led for many years by General Qassam Soleimani, 
whose stated purpose was the liberation of Jerusalem. Arafat was mainly and publicly secular in his aims, and the more moderate contemporary Palestinian party, Fatah, is the direct descendant of Arafat's PLO, the Palestinian Liberation Organization. However, the fiercely Islamic Khomeini now had an in with Palestinians, many of whom thought Arafat too moderate, and thus the more extreme Islamist group Hamas was born. After the Oslo Accords and their subsequent collapse with the Second Intifada in 2001, Iran entrenched itself further into the Palestinian political sphere, building the same guerrilla training camps that it had in Lebanon in the 1970s. In 2005, Israel unilaterally disengaged from the Gaza Strip, removing all Israelis from Gaza and officially ending its military occupation. Elections took place in Gaza and Hamas won the majority of the seats. This victory set off a war between Fatah and Hamas, and between 2006 and 2007, over 600 Gazans were killed. But eventually Hamas prevailed. Iran's long game had paid off, and now the liberation of Jerusalem and the West Bank seemed closer than ever. Given Iran's clearly and regularly stated intentions towards Israel, it is no wonder that Israel has said that they will never accept a nuclear Iran. To do so would be to essentially sign their death warrant. Much of the Western world also believes that a nuclear weapon in the hands of Iran would be disastrous. In 2014, the Obama administration began negotiations to try and delay the inevitable with a nuclear deal with Iran. When the Trump administration later backed out of the Iran deal and recognized Jerusalem as the capital of Israel with little blowback, it seemed that the Israeli-Palestinian conflict had waned and heavily sanctioned Iran could not long sustain the many proxy wars it had committed itself to across the Middle East. But Iran continued to gain power across the region despite nearing bankruptcy. In 2021, the Biden administration re-entered talks for a renewed Iran nuclear deal in Vienna. And though not much had been officially stated, most reports imply stalemated negotiations. In the middle of these Vienna talks, international coverage of Sheikh Jarrah evictions in East Jerusalem and protests at the Al-Aqsa Mosque coincided with Al-Quds Day, and Hamas in Gaza issued an ultimatum. Withdraw security forces from the Temple Mount in Sheikh Jarrah, or they attack. Iran unequivocally voiced its support. When rockets began to fall and drones began to be shot down, it became evident that Iran's support was not merely vocal, but they had also directly supplied the Hamas and Islamic Jihad arsenal. Iraqi Shiite militias on the Israeli-Syrian border voiced their support and signaled their readiness to join the fight. Hezbollah increased its readiness levels. Israel prepared for what might become a multi-front war. The message was not lost on the negotiators in Vienna. Iran could send a barrage of hundreds of rockets from the south, but it could also send a salvo of thousands of rockets from the north. Even without a nuclear weapon, Iran essentially holds the fate of Israel in their hands. The Israeli-Palestinian conflict is not a sideshow when it comes to Iran or Iranian nuclear weapons. It's at the very heart of it. Though many Palestinians might view Iran as their only reliable ally in their fight against Israel, Iran has used them and the Palestinian cause for over 40 years for their own purposes. Though perhaps there is an apocalyptic religious backing to Iran's complete rejection of Israel, it has little to do with human rights, as they claim. 
Iran's Foreign Minister Mohammad Javad Zarif, while encouraging and taking credit for Hamas's victory and decrying Israel's, quote, racist criminal behavior, unquote, regularly meets with Syrian President Bashar al-Assad, possibly the most significant war criminal and human rights violator of our times, an Iranian puppet who's unleashed absolute hell on Syria and has the blood of hundreds of thousands on his hand. Though Iran loves to frame issues like Sheikh Jarrah from a humanitarian standpoint, they haven't a leg to stand on when it comes to human rights, either at home in Iran or their interests abroad. Sheikh Jarrah and the Legal Quagmire of Land Rights in the West Bank Much of the international community's eyes were focused on Israel and Palestinians of East Jerusalem and the West Bank because of two words, Sheikh Jarrah. Every time I logged into Twitter, I saw the trend hashtag save Sheikh Jarrah. And because most of my Twitter follows are reporters in the Middle East slash Arab world, it seemed every other tweet on my feed was saying Israeli settlers were violently seizing land and evicting Palestinian owners. It seemed like the broader controversy of Israel was playing out in miniature and everyone, from celebrity to congresswomen to respected journalists, were saying that not only were Israel's actions immoral, they were stealing land and turning out families during Ramadan, but it was also evil, a case of ethnic cleansing. As I scrolled and scrolled, seeing the same basic premise parroted over and over, I instinctively knew there had to be more to the story. The optics for Israel were terrible. Pictures of jeering Orthodox teenagers surrounded a woman wearing hijab. Pictures of protest signs had words like colonialism, ethnic cleansing, settler violence, free Palestine written on them. It was the last week of Ramadan when emotions were running high. Rioting broke out and arrests were made. Why, I asked myself, would Israel do something so provocative during Ramadan? There has to be more to this story. I vaguely remembered reading a New York Times article almost a decade ago about Sheikh Jarrah, and I knew that some legal complications were attached to that name. So I began to dig. Sheikh Jarrah was a predominantly, but not exclusively, Arab neighborhood about two kilometers or a mile outside of the old city in Jerusalem. As part of East Jerusalem, it's considered by the UN to be part of the West Bank and therefore an occupied territory, though Israel has considers it annexed and um, fully part of Israel. However, its history begins long before Israel took control over the region in 1967. In the 3rd century BC, a famous high priest, Shimon Hatzadik, or Simeon the Just, was buried outside of Jerusalem, and the area was named after him and frequented by Jewish pilgrims. This area later became a predominantly Arab neighborhood during the Ottoman Empire. It was named Sheikh Jarrah after a famous person buried there, Saladin's physician who fought the Crusaders in the 1100s. In 1858, some plots in Sheikh Jarrah were purchased from their Arab owners by Jewish communities. Rabbis Avraham Ashkenazi and Meyer Auerbach registered this land purchase with the Ottoman Land Registry. The Jewish communities then lived in the Arab neighborhoods over seven decades, through the end of the Ottoman Empire and to the end of the British Mandate. 
when independence from British custodianship seemed to be drawing near, the Jewish owners of the property in Sheikh Jarrah tried to register their ownership of the properties with the British. They could not complete the registration process for all of the plots before Israel declared its independence in 1948. Almost immediately, Israel was at war with its Arab neighbors. The old city of Jerusalem and the surrounding neighborhoods, including Sheikh Jarrah, were captured by Transjordan, now called Jordan. The Jewish families were evicted from their land, and Transjordan took custodianship of the properties under their, quote, Jordanian custodian of en enemy properties, unquote, law. Israel enacted a similar law in the territory under its control, called, quote, custodian for absentee property, unquote. Both Israel and Jordan were not keen to let these properties remain empty. Indeed, with large numbers of refugees, the most practical option was to use the properties as a means of resettlement. The abandoned title would be transferred to the new owners. Many Arab properties in West Jerusalem transferred to Jews under this law, and many Jewish properties in East Jerusalem transferred to Arabs. But for whatever reason, in 1956, Jordan leased but did not transfer title deeds of the lots in Sheikh Jarrah to 28 Palestinian families. Then came the Six-Day War in 1967. Israel regained control of Jerusalem. With this retaking of Jerusalem, a city that had changed hands so many times in less than a century, the question of property ownership was complex. All the, quote, enemy, that is Jewish, properties under Jordanian custodianship reverted to Israel. To deal with this strange situation, Israel passed a law allowing Jews whose families were previously evicted by Jordanian or British authorities to reclaim their land. However, this reclamation had two requirements. One, the claimant must have a legitimate title deed or proof of purchase, and two, existing residents had to have no title deed or proof of purchase. So, in 1973, the properties in questions were re-registered by the Community Committee and the Knesset Israel Committee with Israeli authorities. The Palestinian residents were allowed to stay on as protected tenants on the condition that they paid rent and maintained the properties. Initially, they agreed to this setup, but later many began to reject the court ruling, even after signing it, and refused to pay rent making them eligible for eviction. The case has been in Israeli courts for almost 50 years, with accusations of forgeries and double standards from both sides. Compromises were offered, with the property owners suggesting that they not collect rent until the next generation becomes the primary residence. However, several properties have made their way through courts with the rulings in favor of the Jewish landlords, and evictions have slowly taken place over the years. The District Court of Jerusalem was set to rule on four of these disputed properties, but the, ru the ruling was postponed as tensions quickly escalated and protests became violent. Hamas and its allies seized on the possibility of evictions to stir up anger in the West Bank and internationally, setting the stage for them to issue an ultimatum. When Israel described Sheikh Jarrah as private property disputation, it was met with scorn by advocates and allies of Palestine. 
quote, everything that's wrong with the dynamics between Israel and Palestine is in this conflict. Palestinians are losing their homes. They would say Israeli nationalist settlers are establishing enclaves in East Jerusalem. We hope that East Jerusalem will one day be the capital of the Palestinian state. And it's crawling with Israeli settlers. Palestinians have no chance for justice when they have to go to Israeli courts, which will definitely rule in the favor of their fellow Jews. These are just some of the claims made by the Palestinian side. Israelis, too, will say that everything that's wrong about the Israeli-Palestinian relationship is in Sheikh Jarrah. Jewish communities legally purchased land that had sacred significance to them. And after trying to pursue justice through a relatively liberal court system and offering generous incentives to tenants, such as not collecting rent for several decades, when a legal ruling finally comes through, the world cries genocide and ethnic cleansing. Now, while Sheikh Jarrah was a significant mitigating circumstance for the outbreak of war, the situation at the Al-Aqsa Mosque complex genuinely lit the fuse. Al-Aqsa, Damascus Gate, and Ramadan. On April 13th, almost a month before Hamas fired the first rocket in the latest Gaza conflict, Ramadan began. Coincidentally, this day is also a memorial day in Israel, a day of national mourning for those who died defending the country. Israel's President Rifflin was scheduled to make a speech at the Western Wall Plaza. The Western Wall, a limestone retaining wall, is the only remaining ruins of the Second Temple and the holiest place in Judaism. It sits on, a, on the side of a steep hill of what the Jews and Christians call the Temple Mount. For Muslims, this hill is known as Haram al-Sharif, or the Noble Sanctuary. The Dome of the Rock, the Dome of the Chain, and the Al-Aqsa Mosque sit atop the hill that is the third holiest site in Islam, surrounded by four minarets. These minarets proved to be a point of contention on this particular day. Because the western wall lies at the base of Haram al-Sharif, the call to prayer for Ramadan would probably interrupt and drown out the presidential Memorial Day address. Israeli officials requested that the mosque officials not broadcast prayers, but mosque officials refused, seeing the request as disrespectful. According to mosque officials, Israeli police then cut the cables linked to loudspeakers on the minarets, starting Ramadan off on a very bad foot and marked a distinct escalation and tension. This tension only increased when police decided to close an important gathering place for young Muslim men during Ramadan, the Damascus Gate Plaza. Israeli security decided to prevent dangerously large crowds and prevent violence, but it was yet another slight on top of the cut speaker cables to Palestinians. Protests began to take place almost nightly at the Damascus Gate. Violence began to spill out beyond the Damascus Gate when Palestinian teenagers recorded attacks on a Jew on public transportation and uploaded the recording assaults to TikTok. Far-right Jewish groups began counter-protests, some of which also dissolved into violence. On April 25th, in an attempt to lower the temperature, Israel reopened the Damascus Gate Plaza, but it was too late. They were past the point of no return. When the, quote, Speaker Gate, unquote, and Damascus Gate incidents were connected with the upcoming Sheikh Jarrah ruling protests, 
all the events combined, Palestinian anger at being, quote, forced out of Jerusalem, unquote, continued protests and Israeli police responses kept the offense fresh and in international news. The sharpest escalation came on Friday, May 7th, Al-Quds Day, when word reached Israeli security services that rocks and other weapons were being stockpiled in the Al-Aqsa Mosque. After several days of protests on the Al-Aqsa complex where Hamas flags were flying and rhetoric was getting increasingly threatening, police entered the Al-Aqsa complex that evening. A clash between police and rock throwers began, and it lasted hours. Hundreds were injured. On Monday, May 10th, that is Jerusalem Day, an Israeli celebration of the capture of all Jerusalem in 1967 with a parade that ends at the Western Wall. On the same day, the rulings of Sheikh Jarrah were to take place. The Israeli government first rerouted, then canceled the parade, then postponed the Sheikh Jarrah rulings. But another clash on the Al-Aqsa complex between stone-throwing and fireworks-shooting rioters and police canceled any de-escalating effects. Hamas said that if Israel did not remove security forces from the Al-Aqsa complex by 6 p.m. that evening, rockets would fall. And shortly after 6 p.m., they did. The months of Ramadan indeed marked a time of increased alienation, anger, and violence between the residents of East Jerusalem and Israelis. Still, isolated images and 10-second video clips were often the sources of international outrage, but frequently these pictures lacked the context for proper interpretation. For instance, there was a much-shared video of a sea of Jewish people celebrating on the Western Wall Plaza, while above them a large fire burned on the Al-Aqsa compound. Were these people celebrating the destruction of the Al-Aqsa Mosque, or were they celebrating Jerusalem Day, as they would every year? Was it the tear gas of Israeli security services that desecrated the Temple Mount, or was it Muslim rioters' fireworks that set fire to their own compound that was the desecration? Are the flags of Hamas, an internationally recognized terrorist organization on the Temple Mount, a peaceful protest? Or are they the forerunners of a massacre which Hamas was openly calling for at the time? At what point is it appropriate for government forces to enter a holy site used to stockpile weapons? Perhaps you have different answers to these questions, but they are worth asking. Maybe the answers are not found on the surface or in slogans. But in framing this fateful month in centuries that preceded it, and beyond a few neighborhoods in East Jerusalem, to power players in the greater Middle East. That's the end of part one of Roots of Rage, but keep out, uh, keep an eye out for the next installment. We'll be covering topics such as Hamas, Land for Peace, Intifada, Arab-Israeli citizens, Israeli and Palestinian authority elections, anti-Semitism in Western context, and the PR slash optics war in the media. This has been a recording of Roots of Rage Part 1, Iran, Sheikh Jarrah, and Al-Aqsa. If you enjoyed listening, please feel free to read or listen to other articles at oliaster.org. Receive new content in your inbox by subscribing to the Substack or follow at Oliaster Branch on X or Instagram. Any and all feedback to this and other articles is welcome. If you have a question, comment, or correction, please feel free to email contact at oliaster.org. The music in this episode is Zion Train 
by Alexandra Simeon. Thanks for listening. Until next time, Maranatha.